Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hi everyone, my name is Susan Watkins and I'm Professor of Women's Writing and Director of the Centre for Culture and the Arts in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome to the third in our podcast series on COVID-19 and culture. In the first episode, we explored what we can learn from history about coping with pandemic and lockdown. And in the second episode, we looked at some of the ways our lives and our engagement with culture have changed because of COVID-19, focusing on the body, the urban environment and food. Today, we examine how COVID-19 and lockdown have made stigma and social inequality worse, but also how we can see resistance and challenge to that in the culture around us. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. Dr Emily Marshall is reader in post-colonial literatures and Jane Raysborough is professor of media in cultural studies and humanities. Jane, perhaps we could start with you because two of the things that we know make COVID-19 much more serious for the sufferer are age and weight. And I know that you have done a lot of research into the way that older people and overweight people are represented in the media. And I know you've been exploring ideas about stigma in relation to both of those things. Would you like to tell us a bit about your research in those areas? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I, I think statements by Richard Sennett made quite a bit of time ago. And he said that only a certain type of person, any certain kind of human could survive and even hope to thrive in conditions of neoliberal social order. And that got me thinking then, what kind of things was I seeing on uh, popular media? And it, it seemed to me that the kind of things that we see on things like makeover shows are the kind of ideological work that's helping us see those certain types of people that Richard Sennett said were quite rare as normal and also was something that we should all aspire to. So my starting point looking at stigma was actually to look at makeover shows, I mean, quite, pretty ubiquitous, quite, mm. quite harmless type things. Um, and I thought, well, what we're seeing in the before and after, we're getting demonstrations of the kind of self we should be, but also the kind of self that we really shouldn't be. And we were getting a lot. I don't know if you remember these shows, but you get quite a lot of stigma and a lot of shaming that's used in various ways. And I think what these are trying to do is push us all towards these idea that pushes all to these ideal types, you know, making it normal and making us all want to, to be them. So I think there's something about makeover shows that is training us, if you like, to be the perfect neoliberal citizen. But those things are tend to be used as vehicles to sell other kinds of neoliberal ideals. So I started off thinking, OK, well, what is the ideal neoliberal citizen? Just so I see how far behind I was. And the main features are that the ideal citizen is independent. They're also mm. highly trainable. They're not skilled. That, that's not important. They need to be trained to do any kind of job. They're self-reliant. They have zero drag. That means they've got no ties, no family commitments. They are avid consumers. You know, they buy their way through life. If there's a problem to life, they will buy the solution. So all this means that the ideal neoliberal citizen keeps consumer capitalism going. They can move from job to job, no matter where the job is or how long the job is for. I mean, the, the neoliberal citizen loves zero hour contracts. That's absolutely mm -hmm. fine for them. And they're just basically this disposable labour force that can meet 
the needs of capital, but they're also independent and self-responsible. So they're not asking for any help. They're not asking for support. They're not even asking for any loyalty, not just from their bosses, but also worryingly from the state. And this is where I started to think that a type of stigma starts to attach itself to bodies and people who lack this type of, well, I don't know, hypermobility. Um, dependency starts to be a bad word and also a, a stigmatised state. And, and with it, we get this increased moralised imperative upon all of us to look like we're not burdens or, or dependent. It doesn't actually matter whether you are or not. You just need to make sure that you don't look like a burden. So this means mm -hmm. you shouldn't look old and you shouldn't look ill, which is where my focus on age and illness comes from. And I just wanted to say something about illness, how that links into obesity. It, it seems to be quite straightforward to stigmatise somebody who, who looks old, but illness is a little bit tricky because even the most punitive, nasty state would struggle to condemn its people for being ill, right? Mm. Even though this has happened. And it can only really do that by suggesting that the illness is something which is self-produced. So it's something that you have done to Self yourself. Self-inflicted, yeah. Self it's your fault, you know. And, and also it's a threat to others. And these things have got to work together. And when I looked at obesity science, I saw that obesity fits both of these need, needs beautifully. OK, mm -hmm. because we've all got this idea, haven't we, that fat is our responsibility. And we've also got this idea that fat people are a drain on the limited resources of our healthcare system. So what we've got these massive industries, we've got the industry of obesity science and we've got the industry, the diet industry. Both of which are interestingly really predicated on very common sense assumptions and very little biomedical evidence. Now, this makes people go, how can you possibly say that? We all know, surely there's evidence. Very, very, very little evidence. And I'll come to that a little bit uh, later. But I think it's nice for us, if you like. I'm being sarcastic now. You can't tell by, by the look on my face. But it's nice to have very handy scapegoats for the state of the health in the UK particularly about limited healthcare resources, and um, because it distracts from the impact of selling off great swathes of, of, of healthcare. It, it really, it, it just distracts us. So it's much nicer for the state to have somebody to blame. And I think this is where um, fat and old people come in. That's really interesting. And I mean, I think it, it reframes how we think about how we make judgments about people and how we... Um pathologize if you like certain kinds of individuals either because of their age or their body weight or how they are as you put it kind of looking after themselves um do you think we can see that same kind of uh, representation in terms of how old people or overweight people experience covid19 though particularly yeah i i think what we've seen in our response to covid is how age stigma which has been building up for many years, so it's not unique to COVID, but how it's led to a disregard of elderly people. And yeah. it's really clear now. Well, you know, when, when we were looking at the modelling science, so the modellers got together and they were working out trying to forecast the spread of the virus and they were using their forecasts to help inform policy decisions. They weren't making policy decisions, I have to say that, that was the, the, the role of the government. But you can see that the modelling science did not adequately think through care homes. Now, this wasn't intentional, right? Mm. You know, these are these are nice people, uh, they're, they're clever people, they're just trying to work out what's the best thing to do for the country. But they just really didn't put care homes or elderly people centre stage. And what that meant was 
that they didn't understand how care homes worked. So even though there was talk about throwing a ring around care homes, nobody understood really about who works in those care homes. The Mm. fact that most of it's done by agency staff, part time workers moving from job to job. So care homes became very, very dangerous places. And I think there's two things we can say about uh, about what we're learning through COVID. The first thing is that age stigma, which has been brewing for a long time, worked to make older people invisible or disposable. And we still see that that discourse going along. And the second thing is, is that age stigma has worked to undervalue the people who work with old people. And it's also worked to devalue caring. So the people who work with elderly people and other dependent groups, we don't pay those people into positions where they've got to take multiple jobs, where they have to do their very complex jobs in very, very short time frames. So people get their their um, the value for money from them. And all of this has, has really compounded what was already a very, very risky uh, situation. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. Yeah, yeah. Emily, I think you wanted to come in there. Yes, uh, that's absolutely fascinating, uh, Jane. I was just, uh, I was interested in what you were saying about how the, um, you know, the perfect Uh, neoliberal citizen is not dependent uh, on the state and doesn't look like a burden. And I was wondering about whether you'd looked at at all at non-Western countries where uh, the sick and the old in certain situations, you know, are not as much the responsibility of the state, but become the responsibility of the family and whether there is, you've seen that same stigma reflected yeah no no I haven't but it it would be very interesting to do that the only way I've taken this research forward is to look at welfare claimants uh, in the UK so this is very much UK focused mainly because I'm trying to understand what is happening to the welfare state at the moment so um not only is it Western centric, but it's also very much UK centric as well. But there's certainly a lot to be said about the family. And I think we can idealise the family as well as this place of support um, when we can look at other research to suggest that the family can become an incredibly place, uh, incredible place of stress where they've got to carry these burdens without support from the state. So I don't know, mm. is this something you've looked into, Emily? No, it's it's not something that I've looked into in um, in detail, but I was really interested in what you were saying, Jane, also about how you know, the height in terms of COVID and how that has also highlighted social inequalities and the way that the elderly are are treated and regarded in society and also those that work with them, you know, which kind of links, which links with the high proportion of people who have from, from minority ethnic backgrounds who have been affected by COVID, who are in those caring roles and who are not paid a great deal for them. Yeah, I, I also... I also feel there's some stigma about multi-generational families, don't you? There's, that often becomes a kind of shorthand phrase for, you know, poor housing. Um, yeah, definitely minority ethnic families who live in this weird way where they actually look after their old people at home. Um, and that 
is seen as a as a bad thing because it allows COVID to spread more easily. Um, and that's that's almost in, in itself kind of being stigmatised, I think. I wonder whether the, the same things that you've said about age in terms of our disregard for older people. What about how that might apply to overweight people in relation oh. to COVID, though? Oh, brilliant question. I mean, it's so interesting. So if I'm making one point that old people are made invisible, it's almost like uh, fat people. And I'm using that term in a, in a uh, in a critical way. OK, so the way that fat scholars would would use that term in an activist way. So um, as all people are becoming visible, um, fat bodies have become sort of more visible. So much so that the prime minister sort of started to lose weight, didn't he, when he mm. came to and he was offering all of this money to the NHS to give everybody sort of um, support, particularly surgical support, because of course that's very lucrative. Uh, so anyway, don't get me onto that. And then it sort of disappeared. Now, yeah, I don't know whether that's yeah. because the prime minister's weight loss didn't go so great. I don't know. But it all went a little bit quiet. I'm being facetious there, everybody. Um, and soon obesity got wrapped in. Well, as far as I am thinking about it, it got wrapped into this nebulous underlying conditions. And that made yeah. me wonder. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that big thing anymore. So it made me wonder whether we're starting to see that these scientific claims weren't as strong as they've been purporting to be for some time. So I think there was a limitation there of, of medical science. And I think it reached its wall. So it couldn't really say anything, anything mm. else. But also there has been some evidence, particularly from China, that did suggest that being overweight or obese increased your chances of, first of all, getting COVID and also having really serious consequences of, of, of COVID as well. So it's, it's not that I'm suggesting that there may not be a link. So when we look at how obesity and overweight are being measured, it's been through the BMI. Now, most medical scientists would agree that the BMI is the most awful measure mm. of fat. Too blunt, isn't it? It's, it's not it's, specific enough. It's yeah. not, but it doesn't even measure fat. And, that, and there's something about its name. So it's body mass index, right. not body fat index. Um, so it's really, really bad uh, way of doing it. But it's cheap, you see. It's really, really cheap because you just you just use a, a sum, don't you? You divide something by something you else. Can and you can work out it. your own. Yeah. yeah, you can work out your own. So it's a really nice lifestyle measure. Um, but actually proper um, uh, ways of measuring fat are really quite expensive and involve high tech machinery and proper stats. It is very, very possible. And this is going to be a worry to everyone who feels that that nice sense of smugness, perhaps, that you've got a low BMI. But you can have a low BMI and a very high rate of vascular fat. And vascular fat is the most dangerous stuff. That's the stuff that even as you're listening to this, folks, is clogging your organs even now. <laughs> right. So you, we, we can be pushed into a false sense of security by thinking that because we've got a low BMI or because I'm thin, for example, then I'm not at risk of some of the things to do to do with that. So I think we've got to ask questions about how these things were measured. When this thing kicked off in China and also Italy, they didn't gather data on weight and what have you. So we, we, we still don't know. Uh, so we still need data. But if we look at data from past flu outbreaks, um, it's not obesity. That's an issue. So there's a massive um, a study in California that looked at people who'd been hospitalized or had been uh, had died from flu outbreaks up to I think it was about 2010. And they found that 60 percent, 66 percent of obese people who were hospi had been hospitalized or died out of that, the number of um, flu victims, if you like. But they didn't actually die of obesity. What they died of was underlying conditions, lung disease and heart problems. Now, what we don't know is whether fat caused these things to happen or whether these things caused fat. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, we just, just don't know. Mm. So obesity has been used as a sort of catch all. Mm. And of course, it's very easy to blame somebody for being fat. It's much, much harder to blame somebody for having lung problems or heart problems mm. or diabetes. It, 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 these things are much more difficult to blame. So it, it's the blame culture that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at. But the last thing I wanted to say about this, sorry, I'm going on, but it links to Emily's point was when you look at the images of those those poor people who lost their lives at the beginning of COVID, it was very telling that they were all in. Uh, they were nursing. They were bus drivers. They were taxi drivers. There were people who, who sometimes were low paid. Um, often people who uh, were on shift work. They had disrupted sleep. They had disordered uh, eating to, eating patterns. Um, and we know all of these things have a major major impact up, upon upon your health. So I think we need to ask better questions. Not whether how fat were the people who died. I think we need to ask the question. What is the impact on our, of our working lives upon our bodies and our health? Dan, if we really want to understand COVID, we have really got to understand our working conditions. Who is doing the work and what impact is work having um, upon our health? That's a really great point, I think. Absolutely. Thanks, Jane. And that does lead nicely into, um, Emily, your work, because as well as weight and age, there have been high numbers of black and minority ethnic deaths from COVID-19. But also, I think during the pandemic, a real attempt to resist and challenge the social and cultural inequalities that people of colour experience. So I wonder how you feel about this. I mean, do you think the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, has challenged the kinds of inequalities in black people's lives that COVID's made apparent? Some of the things that Jane's perhaps been speaking about. Uh, yes, I think it has, Susan. And um this summer in particular saw a, a huge kind of momentum in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement mm. and it became very much a global movement. Obviously the Black Lives Matter movement isn't anything new, it's been going since 2013 after the shooting of uh, Trayvon Martin and then it was after that shooting by uh, George Zimmerman that Trayvon Martin was an African-American teenager who was uh, in a white neighbourhood, you know, at the wrong time, at the wrong place, completely mm. innocent, and was shot. And it was after that that the hashtag Black Lives Matter sort of trended all over social media and gained momentum. But this summer in particular, after there was a sense of a kind of global connectedness, and I think that, that the pandemic had something to do with that. We saw Black Lives right. protests all across Europe, all across America. And what was interesting as well is that they took on a different shape according to that country. You know, so in, in, in Belgium, it was about the Belgium Congo, about uh, King Leopold. Here, we, we, we saw statues being thrown, statues of slave traders being thrown into um, rivers. So they took on a sort of different shape according to which country they were held. And, and that's the beauty of the Black Lives Matter movement as well. It's, it's not a centralised organisation. So it can seed in different countries. Um, and those plants, I guess, grow in different ways according to the, the historical uh, structures of that country. I think that the Black Lives Matter movement wouldn't have gained that kind of momentum in the wake you know, of the killing of uh, George Floyd if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Yes, I agree with that mm. yeah because we were all you know we people were you know they they were they were at home and we had people's attention that I think there was also a sense of of connectedness in their sense of a sort of shared humanity a shared sense of vulnerability in the face 
of COVID-19. But at the same time, I think there's a risk there of sort of romanticising that idea, you know, that we, we, were, we suddenly felt we were all in the same boat, you know, that we were, we, we were all together in this, when in fact, uh, the pandemic, as we've said, highlighted, you know, some really problematic um, structural uh, racial inequalities. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the 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 movement, it seems to me, is it was very much responding not just to you know really explicit forms of violence like police brutality, but also to what we might call implicit or symbolic violence that caused by the kind of social inequality that makes the experience of a pandemic worse for certain groups, the kinds of groups that we've been speaking about. Jane, you wanted to come in there, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking, Emily. I think that's a, a brilliant point to talk about sort of the temporality really that the, the pandemic because I was just thinking about the responses to the Sainsbury's ad which has just unleashed this torrent of yeah of, of yeah. racism mm. I just wondered how that fitted into what you were saying there yeah I, well I think that we've seen you know even though there has been this incredible uh, show of sort of allyship and um, and shared struggle with Black Lives Matter that we're in a more divided country than ever in many ways. And the Brexit vote, the Grenfell tragedy, the Windrush scandal, all of these, you know, show the, the, the deeply rooted r- racial inequalities of our in our country. Um, and people feel under threat. The Black Lives Matter movement made people feel threatened. Um, the very peaceful protests that happened in Leeds, um, socially distanced, you know, very, very inspiring was broadcast um, on the Yorkshire Evening Post website. And in the comments, it's just endless abuse. You know, the, the responses, there isn't, a, you'd hard push to find a positive response to it. So people felt threatened, and it's partly that kind of nostalgia for Britain as empire, Britain, you know, ruling the waves and the, the diminishment of our, of, of British power that people I think feel so frightened about. But, but you know, that, that point about, um, of COVID and 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 people of colour and um, there was a Public Health England review um, in June uh, this year which showed that that people of Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, Asian and Caribbean ethnicity had between 10 and 50 percent higher risk of death when compared to white British from the pandemic and they and they in the Public Health England uh, report, they say this is specifically linked to housing challenges faced by members of these groups, income inequality, as you, as we said, Jane, working um, with uh, in occupations with higher risk of COVID exposure, more likely use of public transport. And then they've listed historic racism, as well as um, poorer experiences of health care, um, or, or less likely to seek care if, if they if, if people members of that particular group fall ill they might be less likely to seek care and support so all of those factors drive that that you know that terrifying figure of, of how disproportionately affects people yeah that's very it. stark isn't it yeah it, it makes me think that whenever we're, we're talking about these things we have to talk about intersectionality um, and, and particular you know poverty has to be at the heart of Part of this, so we're, we're talking about social social class as well, without diminishing the impact of that racism, ageism, fatism have. It's it's this real cruel intersection with, with class mm. um, that that is leading to these dramatic and, and horrifying mortality rates. Yeah, um, in in this environment, um, you've mentioned um, 
the removal of statues and particularly statues associated with the history of colonialism and white supremacy. And and I wonder how you think that sits in relation to this current moment of the pandemic and lockdown. Yes. So, again, this was really interesting over the summer because those of us who've been harping on about all of this for a long time, people suddenly wanted to listen and wanted to. I had a lot of people coming to me asking for advice, even from friends asking what, um, you know, what books with people of colour could they read their kids? And to institutions getting in touch, Leeds City Council, Harwood House, I've been consulting on how they can better address their historical past, um, museums and galleries, the Thackeray Museum. Suddenly, all these different you know, public uh, uh, institutions wanted to be seen to be doing better. And that's, you know, and that's positive um, as long as it's not flash in the pan. And also as long as then people of colour don't just be resource. For, for institutions to kind of keep, you know, drawing from without, without giving anything back. Yeah. Being paid. Right. <laughs> and without being gaining proper recognition for it as well and without, you know, and, and getting exhausted by it. Um, but, Susan, you said about the statues and I think it was as a response to the to the statues, that in particular the, the the tearing down of the Edward Colston statue, that I think really kick-started that kind of uh, momentum of the different of institutions looking inward and and questioning, you know, what they were doing and whether they were doing things right. Uh, I I must say, for me, that, that the toppling of the statue was a kind of iconic moment in our history, and. Um, I just thought that, you know, Edward Colson, he was a he was a, a slave trader. He transported 84,000 Africans and it's believed that 19,000 of his slaves died in Middle Passage. So wow. for 19,000 deaths. So that the fact that he should be thrown into the River Avon amongst the fishes, like so many of his uh, slaves who died in Middle Passage, I think is, is uh, you know, has a poetic justice. Yeah, and we in Leeds also did a review of our statues here. Um, and you, you contributed to that, I think, didn't you? Yes. That's right, with uh, Simon Morgan. Yeah. And that was really interesting because they wanted to us to look at all the statues in Leeds and to think about whether any of them were deeply offensive. And so we looked at all, we looked at the statues. The outcome of the review really is that, well, first of all, Leeds isn't doing that great in terms of its public art. <laughs> <laughs> Center, it does center, you know, the statues that we have here celebrate uh, the monarchy, they celebrate the feats of great white men, they, cele- they celebrate um, uh, uh, religion. So they, we don't have much sort of alternative narratives in, in, the, in our statues, but it was decided that none of them were abhorrent, but that actually the narrative around the statues needed to change. So, for example, the Queen Victoria statue in Hyde Park you know, which which she sort of sits on her throne and she has, you know, Africa, India, the, the, the different parts of her empire listed around her her throne. So it's clearly a kind of celebration of colonialism. And so we wanted in the sign that accompanied that, that statue to, to clearly state, you know, what the statue represented and to uh, to make sure that the narrative, you know, also uh, showed us a sort of alternative understanding of British history rather than one which was just celebratory. Mm, so that whole issue of changing the narrative, I think that's really important. And that 
leads me on to the decolonizing the curriculum movement and also Black History Month, which are both, I guess, attempts to do precisely that. What are your thoughts about the work that both of those two things do in terms of recognizing black culture and history and making it part of our narrative as a country? You know, in the wake again of of this interest over the summer, you know, the, the momentum that the Black Lives Matter movement had and the fact that there isn't a great deal else to do <laughs> that, that engage. <laughs> People are engaging everywhere. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Yeah. So, so, um, so I think uh, Black History Month is always, you know, it's it's a it's a double-edged sword because you've got everything crammed into one month, which really should be uh, celebrated and discussed throughout the year. Mm. But without it, there wouldn't be this platform to to highlight important aspects of Black history and culture. So, uh, yeah, th- for Black History Month, I've been doing um, work with, with Phoenix Dance Company and Harvard House, as I said, museums and, and um, Thackeray Museum, uh, to think about, especially, you know, how um, they could celebrate diversity. In terms of Harvard House, how do you tell a different narrative? As, yeah. as mm-hmm. Susan, how, how do you recognise the links between Harewood, which is a house built on slave plantation money, how do you recognise that in the narrative that you tell your members and and, pub, and the members of the public in a way you know that is engaging? So that's that. Those are the things that I've been I've been doing. And um, Black History Month has yeah, it's created a sort of platform for those activities. Uh, my worry is is that after Black History Month's over, a lot of those things are dropped, so there isn't a sort of legacy to them. And all you can do is people do make a symbolic gesture of change mm, but it's not mm. deep rooted and so there isn't really kind of proper change institutional change one of the more kind of deep rooted changes that we see is this in this idea of decolonizing the curriculum so thinking about how our curriculum is is bias you know and that's at primary secondary and university level um at the moment, I'm working on some educational resources for Phoenix Dance Company, which which try and introduce Black and Asian stories around the Zong massacre and Indian independence. Um, wow! Yeah, to primary and secondary children. So it's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the ways we're trying to decolonise the curriculum. And just to finish off, I think we do very well at Leeds Beckett uh, on on our courses in terms of ways to to address you know many different historical narratives and not not presenting a biased worldview. I think that's right I think anyone who wants to look at a different and more diverse form of history literature media should consider studying with us. That's not a plug. Not at all um, <laughs> but go finishing up with something slightly more positive tell us a bit about your recent work on carnival cultures and how that connects with some of the ideas we've been discussing, because it kind of moves away and it's much more kind of celebratory, I think, isn't it? And a more positive version of, of, of the contribution and the past that people of colour have made to Leeds and particularly the Afro-Caribbean carnival cultures that you're exploring. Yes. Uh, yes, we, we've, um, we have a, a Caribbean carnival cultures uh, research strand and it's based at, uh, at Leeds Beckett, um, which I lead. And uh, I'm also a, a member of a carnival troupe called uh, Mama Dreads Masqueraders. My obsession with carnival comes from my 
interest in the ways in which people f- use cultural forms to challenge oppressive forms of power. Mm. So carnival is one of those cultural forms. So it can seemingly look like, you know, uh, a time to drink and dance and, 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 and eat um, uh, jerk chicken. And it is all those things. But there's also a, a much a much sort of more profound side to carnival where it's a chance for people to reclaim the streets and people that are people of color to reclaim the streets assert their caribbean heritage and also tap into all sorts of musical costuming dance cultures which link back to the caribbean and also to africa so our troupe always has a political message that we take on the road so we try and take quite difficult elements of, 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 of politics or history and turn them into carnival costumes and a carnival narrative. So just as, a, as an example, we, um, we did a, a David Olawali masquerade in uh, a few years ago where we drew from the tragic story of David Olawali, who was killed at the hands of a racist police in Leeds um, in the 60s. And uh, we tried, we told his narrative through our carnival troupe, we we wow. as, as hibiscus flowers, um, which are a symbol of remembrance, and we had a huge King David made out of papier mâché as our as our leader of our troupe, and we handed out flyers which which um, told the state the story of David Olawali, um, and our troupe was called We All Migrants because it's about identifying with migrant culture. Okay, so that sounds it's more than bikinis and dancing. Absolutely. It's about a kind of protest and challenge to those in power and celebrating that history. It sounds wonderful. It is. And also, obviously, a chance to drink rum and dance like mad as well. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, I always try and end these um, podcasts with with a more positive conclusion. And I think that sums it up. Transformations in our culture can be positive and be about resilience. And that that is a great example. I'd just like to remind our listeners to check out the podcast contributors blogs in the LBU Together series on Leeds Beckett University's website. Please do join us for the next in the series, which will cover how we can see positive, personal and wider changes via writing, as hopefully the pandemic eases or we emerge from it. Thanks for listening. The podcasts in the Beckett Talk series are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. Hope to see you next week.